All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fuck nicks? What the fucksters? What's happening? What is happening? You know, there's part of me that wants to say, you know, what the fuck dum-dums, but you guys aren't dum-dums. It ain't you. It isn't you. But God damn it. They're out there, right? Hey, so I wanted to tell you something about one of our past guests, Sandra Bernhard. You all know her. Uh, has been doing live shows at Joe's Pub in New York City for the past six years. But obviously, that's all on hold now during the pandemic. But now, actually, everyone has a chance to experience them, even if you're not in New York. Sirius XM is putting Sandra's Best of Joe's Pub shows on their Comedy Greats channel. That's Channel 94, starting tomorrow, Friday, June 26th at 6 p.m., There's also a brand new Sandra Bernhardt in conversation with Ron Bennington, who's great. So you can check those out. They'll be airing throughout the summer. This is original live material that has never been broadcast anywhere until now. Okay. Uh, Nora McInerney, okay, is my guest on the show. Now, Nora McInerney has written a couple of books, okay? She's written... uh, it's okay to laugh. Crying is cool too. Uh, she's at, she's written a few other ones. She also hosts the podcast Terrible. Thanks for asking. But the reason we reached out to her or sought her out was because in my time of sadness here, I wanted to talk to somebody about sadness. Some sort of I didn't know if there was a sadness specialist, a grief. I know there are grief groups. There are grief um, therapists. I'd imagine. But uh, Brendan found this TED Talk that Nora did called We Don't Move On From Grief, We Move Forward With It. And I I watched it, and she seemed accessible. She'd been through some stuff, for sure. And she seemed that that her grief was massive, and it was uh, became her calling. So she was the one we chose to talk to. I don't know what I was looking for, but it ended up, you know, she knows my work and and she does a podcast and I don't, you know, I don't know what I was looking for, but I found that talking to somebody who had experienced some, some of the type of sadness that I'm experiencing and the loss was certainly helpful. We ended up crying a bit together, but I, I start to realize there's no magic key to it, you, you know, but I like the idea of, um, we don't move on from, we move forward with, however that looks. I mean, I believe I'm doing a bit better, but I think part of the reason I'm doing better is because there's a certain amount of avoidance going on. But before I talk about that, let's talk about the fucking cat. All right? Like, I, I was, I was going to bring it. You guys heard me the other day. I was going to bring that guy in, man. It was done. It was done. I was going to bring him in the next day. He was kind of half hiding, not much energy. You know, I, I, my fear is that renal failure had started. I, some of the people are you're, you're, you're emailing suggestions for things like checking for diabetes, checking for this, checking for that. I know where he's at. He's at the end of his rope. Well, what happened was the day I was going to bring him in, 
I wake up and the, he's like all over the place. He's like, hey, I'm cool. Everything's good. You know, I, uh, someone told me what you were planning on doing. And uh, I just, uh, look, look, I'm good. Look, come on. I'm hanging out in your lap. You want to purr a little bit? You know, look, I'm licking your hand. Look, look, I'm okay, man. I'm okay. Not yet, buddy. Not yet. Not yet. So somebody told him, or he picked it up on that channel that only cats receive when they know what you're thinking, that, uh, that I was going to... I was going to bring his life to a close. And I've run through it in my mind so many times because I did it with his sister. I know how it goes down. And it's and it's true. My vet will let me be in there with him, which I, I would like to be. So that becomes the fear now. Like he's had a couple of good days. And today wasn't great in the morning. But now he's out. He's on the bed. He's not in the corner. He's not under the bed. He's on the bed. He's eating things. You know, from what people tell me, it's like, look, if he's eating and he's shitting and he's not throwing up, why not just in that? And I'm trying to adapt that, adopt that. Like the the cat's old as fuck. He's going to have some good days. He's going to have some bad days. But then it's just this constant worry. And then I like just, just start bawling because I know that when I put him down, it's going to open up the fucking chasm. Maybe. I don't know. I've certainly done a lot of preparing. I'd like for him to, I wish he'd just die in his sleep. But look, I love the guy. But he, he, he got wind of it. Anyway, that's where we're at with Monkey. Some good days, some bad days. I, I got through the the tunnel of constant panic and obsession on whether I should have him put down every second of the day, and I'm trying to relax. But when you're home all the fucking time, you know, what are you going to do with yourself? And on the other front, you know, the, the sort of thinking about Lynn and processing that grief... He, you know, I'm, I've, I've kind of leveled off at least the last day or two. Something was lifted. I don't know why. I don't know if it was the prayer or the process or the time or the crying or the thinking about it or the letting it in or the choosing not to, you know, make it about me and just thinking about her. But I, the one thing I've been avoiding, you know, I, other than like I, I don't avoid her. You know, I have a piece of art hanging in my bedroom that, you know, was the first piece of art that she bought fairly recently. She never got to hang up. She loved it. I have it up. And every time I see it, I think of her. I have her hat and her jacket and her boots on a coat rack. And I can sort of manifest her when I touch the jacket like an apparition and uh, have a moment with her there. But I've been like I've been avoiding you know, some of the notebooks that that are around because you know, there is part of me that's sort of like, should I do that? I mean, is it my business? But I decided to look at a little notebook and it turns out she's a lot like me or she was a lot like me in that she would start a notebook and then start another notebook. There's a lot of notebooks with, you know, about 10 or 12 pages written on. I know that trick. I know that thing. I don't know why it happens, but I happened to randomly pick a notebook where she had sort of diaried uh, her last birthday weekend with me. And, uh, you know, it, it, uh, it got me. So that stuff, see, it's still right here. I mean, it's still right here, man. But, um, but it was good. It, I think it's good. I'm thinking about telling you guys this weird ass thing that, um, that's a truth that, you know, some of you know that Lynn and I were, were working on a movie for years. And I haven't really talked about this publicly. I do not think I have because it's kind of too much in a way. But, you know, for years we worked on this movie on and off. And it was it was actually 
a lot of times an excuse for us to spend time together when we were with other people, some kind of time. You know, if we were working together on my special or writing, you know, we were we were friends, and, you know, but obviously we knew in our hearts there was something else going on a bit. But we liked to spend time together, so we would work together, and we just strung this movie along forever. And when we were in lockdown, we, she was like, let's get back into it. I'm like, I don't know why we're we're together. We don't, there's no, <laughs> why do we have to, we don't have to write now, because we did it. We're t- we ended up together. Why do we have to work on that? But we want, she wanted to make the movie, I, you know, and I was like, all right, I hate writing. So she had gone through the whole script and there was a lot of it and a lot of it was pretty good. And we were just going to start picking away at it. But we needed to, you know, rework the end, you know, the, the, the end piece and the end revolves. This is where it's just like too fucking much. The end uh, revolves around one of the main characters dying of cancer and how to handle that death. Because it's sort of a pivotal part of the story, which is kind of a a love story in a weird way. Kind of. I I, I don't want to give it away because I guess you know I I haven't let it go yet. But that's the truth. The thing we didn't get to, that we were going to get to, was trying to figure out how the character, what happens upon the character's death of cancer. How fucking heavy is that? God. Damn it, man. It's weird. You know what gave the other day, to be honest with you, what what kind of, what was lifted or something? It's just that I, like, you know, I was just sitting there by myself in my house. I'd cook myself dinner. I've done a lot of cooking. And, you know, I'm like, well, fuck, man. I need something, man. I need something. I'm like, I'll go get some ice cream. And I'm like, fuck it. Just do it. And I've been, I've been eating ice cream, really. I walked down the street, bought me a couple pints, came home, laid into that. And then it's just like, I realized, like, I know this fucking life. Quarantine or no quarantine. I've been a self-employed comic for a long time and sitting around, writing things down, thinking about stuff, deciding when, when and if to masturbate on any given day. Should or shouldn't you have ice cream? That kind of shit. I've lived that life. I don't want to live that life. It's not the life I choose for myself. But it's not sad because I've lived like that before. I would say most of my life on some level is, you know, how to deal with that kind of time. But now it's sad. It is sad because I, I was getting used to not being alone. So Nora McInerney. Uh, has a podcast called uh, Terrible Thanks for Asking that you can get wherever you get your podcasts. You can also go to NoraBorealis.com to check out her books, writing, and speeches. Uh, and again, this is a conversation about grief and about her life uh, coming up in just a minute here. Hi, Nora. Hi, Mark. Um, thank you for doing this. Thanks for having me. I mean, I've honestly, I told your producer, I, I don't think I've ever replied to an email faster, but I've wanted to reach out, but there's no way to reach out without being like a weirdo to be like, oh, I'm a person who's also experienced this kind of loss and I, I want to hug you because it's so yeah. lonely and isolating and also 
so bizarrely common and yeah. also so personal and unknowable to anybody else in the world. Yeah, you could email me. I, I, I'm getting a lot of emails. I, I don't know. We we sort of, because I was going through it, you know, I thought maybe we should look around and see if somebody could speak to it. And um, and Brendan found your TED Talk and, you know, and also a couple other people because I didn't know who really, I, I, I assume there's a whole sort of therapeutic industry around grief or grief counseling, but that's not really like your your background no um no. i mean what did you like what's I, i'd kind of like to move through that yeah. like go before all of the tragedy uh, in your life happened what were you doing uh, i was writing tweets for uh great clips i worked at an ad agency and i wrote great, tweets clips. For great clips what is that what does that even mean what is great clips oh oh Mark, I'm, bless you. It's a, it's, it's only the number one discount haircutting uh, industry. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's a, so it's a, it's a national salon chain, um, uh -huh. family owned, family run. Let me pitch uh -huh. you on Great Clips, where you can get a great haircut for under fifteen dollars. So, how do you get this job? Like, so you're working for an ad agency that deals with that? I mean, we did, we did all kinds of things. At one point in time, I did a social media strategy for a fossil fuels brand. It's not all. It's not all exciting, but I, I lived in Minneapolis, which is an ad agency town because of all the big companies that sure. exist there, 3M, Target, Cargill. And so they actually have a really big ad industry and my parents worked in advertising. So frankly, nepotism got me there and, um, and also just depression, just not being able to like have confidence to pursue anything that I really cared about. That's um, who you were when you were younger? Yeah. That's what so what, you grew up in Minneapolis. I grew up in Minneapolis. And it's just, like, just how, you got a bunch of brothers and sisters. Yeah, I got a big sister, a big brother, a little brother, and I have like fifty first cousins. Oh my so, god! Yeah, we so of, we got a lot of McInerneys out there. Catholic. Catholic. <laughs> so the plan was: so you're just growing up in Minneapolis. You don't have the confidence to pursue. Like, I mean, advertising generally is a default for creative people. It truly is. And being around so many people who thought of their advertising work as art and not oh, just yeah. as was so depleting to me. And it was also the first time I'd ever worked with men. Huh. And uh, that was really bruising to me before I had worked at all PR agencies, which was its own problem, but they were at least fully staffed by women. And yeah. so the problems were just different. They were just different. And there wasn't so much, you know, like a man truly like just taking me to task because I, I, who was not a professional copywriter wrote a headline. What did I think I was doing? Right. So I, like, do you think just anyone can, can, can write a, a poster promoting right. a seven ninety nine haircut? No, yeah. no, no, God, no, no. It's there's, there's an art to it, a science. And I'm, I'm the daughter of a, of a infomercial writer. So really? Yeah. Which, which, which infomercials <laughs> so did you? So many. The Chuck Norris Total Gym, any the the ab glider, the ab roller, the ab. That's bench. your dad. Yeah, the yeah, that's my that's my dead dad. Yeah, <laughs> he was uh, he was he was this really sort of you actually look a lot like him, um, sort of just regular, unassuming guy, really literary, and then uh, made his money selling people um, exercise equipment. So well, that at least he has a, a, some sort of a legacy. I mean, at least yeah. he's there. 
the ab legacy roller. is the shake weight. Okay. Oh, they, he was, oh, he did the shake weight. He didn't write it, but he did consult on it, and uh, and therefore I got a box of shake weights when I was in college. My dad was like, "Try this out. See if it tones your arms and shoulders." And I'm like, "It's hard to get toned arms and shoulders when you are also drinking six beers a night." <laughs> is the problem. The shake weight. <laughs> So you had, yeah. a, you know, people would come to your dorm room and be like, yeah, my dad, uh, he's got to do six second abs, guys. Yeah, OK, yeah. we got to. My dad's the, the six second ab guy. And uh, you want one? I can get you one. I can get you. You guys want to get ripped? I yeah. can get you ripped. OK. <laughs> but, so, but when you say you didn't have confidence to really pursue mm -hmm. what you wanted to do, what does that mean? Like, what 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 were you thinking of? I wanted to be a writer. I didn't really know what that meant other than I liked writing. I liked ideas. And I also was like so many, specifically women who go through the Catholic school system, more just conditioned to like following directions and then yeah. doing really well at those directions and, and, and getting good grades, which is different from having a point of view sure. um, and, and believing in like, who you are in the world. And also like, I'm a white girl who grew up in Minneapolis. So was it extremely hard? No, it wasn't. But I just, I don't know. I just was, I was very directionless. I was extremely directionless. And I, but you went to college. I went to college. I went to college in Ohio again, because I just lacked a direction. And I was like, that's not Minnesota. It's going to be yeah. very different. I'll get out. I'll get out sort of. Yeah. And yeah. I did, I did what every, every girl in 2005 did, which was move to New York city and be like, I'm here. And New York was like, we literally don't care. Like, yeah. <laughs> so you graduated college and you went to New York. I went to New York. And that's where you got the advertising gig. I, I worked in PR first because I applied for writing jobs and I had, I had no, why would you have hired me? They were also jobs that only you could do if you were going to be financially supported by, by a parent or by, mm. you know, some sort of independent wealth. And, um, and also I just had no, I had no point of view. It's a weird job. It is a weird job. And I was so bad at it, Mark. I would just sort of pretend that I was reaching out to people, but I was like this Minnesota girl who at one, I just did not know anything. Like I, I remember meeting this fancy girl at my office and being like, Oh, I like your shoes. Are those from Payless? And they were like, Tory Birch flats and I had no idea what that meant. And she was like, Oh, right. Yeah, they're from Payless, you hillbilly. Uh, so you were just the rube that comes into New York. That's such an yeah. embarrassing sort of feeling when you just don't know what trends or what or what's going on and people are snotty about it. Yeah. I was like, I don't know. I didn't I didn't even know like that the bags yeah. that I was buying in Chinatown were knockoffs. Of, oh boy. Of yes. <laughs> they saw you coming. Like, I was like, oh, this is cute. I had no, no yeah. concept of what, like what way those seas were supposed to be facing. I just didn't sure. know. Just there was a know. brief, there was a brief point there where I knew people that preferred the knockoffs because there was something yeah. sort of uh, campy about it and you could kind of get away with it, you know? Yeah. I don't think people thought that of me. <laughs> so when did you get married? I got married when I was 28 years old. I had In moved, New York? No, in Minneapolis. I'd moved, you went back I'd home? I left New York, uh, just totally wiped out, and and I moved back in with my parents, which I thought they wanted me to do, and then it became obvious they did not. They did not. Um, my How dad. How old tried, were you? I was twenty seven when I moved mm. back in with them, and my yeah. dad did a comp. He researched on Craigslist one bedroom apartments in Minneapolis, and then tried to charge me that in rent for living in my childhood bedroom. Ooh, God, that's uh, that's depressing. 
So you were not in a, not in a good place. I was not in a good place. I was not in a good place. And <laughs> I, I was so bad at d- dating. I'd had one really long-term relationship where I met the boy in high school and stayed with him into my twenties. And that was very normal yeah. for, for where I grew up and, um, and that had fallen apart. And, um, and I, I worked at this job that I did not care about and wasn't passionate about. And the advertising job that your dad got you. Yeah. And um, my mom actually got it for me. If you want to really know real nepotism, my mom hooked me up. My dad was like, you're on your own. (laughs) Yeah. But I'm I'm selling six second abs. What your mom helped you out. I don't have, I don't have time for this. I, I yeah. used to edit his scripts for him as a, as a kid, as a middle yeah. schooler, I would edit the scripts and I would get paid $10 a script, which was uh-huh. your first amazing. advertising job. Yeah. My first job, my first job. Um, but, uh, so I worked in, I worked in advertising. I was really, I don't know, just an empty person, I guess, just like a, a, a blank slate of a person, a person who had absorbed everybody else's interests and personalities. And you didn't, fa- you didn't really have any of your own interests anymore. You found, you felt no. you like you were sort of boring and just kind of going yeah. along. Blank. Like blank. you like, I don't know, like, is it, is it blank or are you just walled off? Maybe, maybe walled off because I, I don't know. I, I truly thought that doing certain things was for a certain kind of person. And I wasn't that kind of person. So I didn't work in like advertising is also very separated into uh, account side, which is like customer service, which is um, almost in every agency, very female, female led. Uh Um, You can lead an account, you can interface with the client and then creative, which is almost all men. And, and so part of the job of an account person is to like cater to these creative men, you know, like uh, you get, you have to set the schedule. You have to follow up with them. You have to make sure they do their work and don't make them mad. And, um, and that was just really, uh, I, I was also a creative person and right. I thought I had ideas and, and it was just really not welcome in that environment. So you and got I, beaten down. Yeah. I just, I just hated it. I hated all of it. I feel like my Sunday, you know, people have like the Sunday dreads. They started at fr- on Friday at five o'clock. Like they started as I left work, I would dread going back. Yeah. Uh, and, and the only future I could see was like, okay, well, I guess, you know, I'm 27. I've invested five whole years of my life. I'm 27. I have to keep doing this forever till I die. So I guess I, I, my goal is to just make it to a director level and then maybe to a VP level. And then, just do this thing that I hate forever. And that's brutal. Yeah. And I met my husband, Aaron, when I was 27 and he was the exact opposite of me. And he worked at a different agency across town Yeah, and he was so brilliant, but in a really sweet and humble way. Wait, he was a copywriter? No, he was a, he was a, um, he was a designer, a graphic designer. And, and, but he's also the kind of person who, and this is, I think what really, change something in me he just made things all the time and 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 so his ego was not attached to um making a dog feed uh banner for the internet right yeah that was something he did and he took pride in it and he did it well but then he would go home and when i had an idea uh like i wanted uh t-shirts made for a kickball team he made a logo he printed the shirts like he just if i had an idea he would help me make it and yeah. so right away, our relationship was really comfortable and fun. And he thought of me as like a creative person. And he thought of me as uh, as a as an interesting person. And I remember him saying, oh, I'm going to read your writing right away. And I'd started to sort of 
quietly write for little websites and blogs. And I was like, you want to read my writing? I, I mean, I'm writing about like, uh, you know, so what, that's nice. Yeah. And he just, he loved it. And at the time I was writing this little, uh, not, not quite a column, but little personal essays and they would come out on Tuesday and he'd get to work on Tuesday and he'd G chat me. This is also a sign of the times 2010. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he'd send me a chat and be like, it's Tuesday. When's it up? I'm refreshing. Yeah. He just was so into it and really let me feel like I was a, I was a person who could make things and, and do things and that my self-worth didn't have to be wrapped up in, in the kind of reply I was getting from somebody at work, which is that did deeply affect me. I was a person who would get a crappy email and be like, wow, I guess I'm, I guess I'm terrible. I should uh, quit my job. Uh, right. Sensitive, <laughs> in- insecure, yes, so insecure, just, and, and just skinless. Just, a- <laughs> yeah, it's weird that no matter how it's good that you were able to take in the good stuff he was telling you, because like, sometimes like bad stuff just overrides it even if you don't even know the person that well one little criticism could just you know fold the entire undertaking yeah yes <laughs> yes so aaron aaron and i worked at we worked different jobs but we worked the same sort of um industry and mm. he was really well known in in minneapolis in the ad community my mom had worked with him previously and when i told her i was going on a date with him she said oh he's such a dumbass because <laughs> she had been an account person and she had, she was like, oh my God, he's just such a dope Nora yeah, because he was, uh-huh. he was really, he would do anything to make somebody laugh. He would do any, he would stand in the back of a, uh, of a company photo. And right before the photo was taken, he'd like take off his shirt and he was like tall and skinny, you know? Yeah. And right. Right. So he'd just be this like random shirtless man in the, in the very background or, um, yeah, he was like he just, a, a, a funny guy, a, an authentic person, creative yeah. guy, yeah. confident. Yeah, and just made you feel, but like, oh, I got to show you what he looked like. Because it's not like he was like, I th- I found him handsome, but he wasn't like, he was just sort of a dorky guy. And yeah. he, he wasn't like. Hey, his, somebody's got to love the dorks. Yes. And like, and his confidence was like never at somebody else's expense. And it he made you feel right away like, oh, the party's here because you're here. And, and I'm so glad you're here and now oh, and you nice. automatically belong. And he did that even for people who were unkind to him and people that he didn't like personally, he, he always made room. And that amazed me because I was not used to, I, I didn't behave like that and I didn't operate in worlds like that. So you, and you guys like fell in love pretty quick or what? It was like, yeah, it was so fast and he had just I found out on our second date that he had just ended his only other long-term relationship and they've yeah. been together for 10 years and she's wow. so beautiful, Mark. And I was so insecure. She looks like Mandy Moore, only she's uh. six two. She's so pretty. Yeah. And it, she's so pretty. <laughs> and she played college volleyball. I didn't uh. make it to college level. I was just like immediately like, Oh my God, it's not going to work. It's not yeah. going to work. Yeah. And, um, and, and it, it did. And it was, I don't know, after, after trying, like, do you know that book, like, Are You My Mother? It's like a little kid's book. It might be uh-huh. Dr. Seuss book. And it's like this little bird wandering through the world being like, are you my mother? Yeah. And that was me, but I was just tapping on, you know, on, on, on people and objects being like, are you my boyfriend? Right. Are you, like, do you love me? And we just chose each other. And it was so 
simple. Like it was so simple and I wanted it to be harder. I even tried to make it harder. And he was like, I just like you like this just works. And it, and it did. And like, yeah, I know. I I know that feeling. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's just, why is it so easy? And then you want to go back and tell that past version of yourself, like, no, no, no. Someday someone will just get it. And you won't have to explain yourself. You won't have to pitch yourself. Right. They'll just get it. They'll get you. So you got married. Yeah. First, uh, it was like, a, like, you know, everything's fine. Everything's normal. Yeah. Um, and then it's not. And it, and it happens so quickly. And you're so sure that it, it's got this has got to be something that happens to someone else. This can't be the actual this reality. What, this is before you got married. This is before we got married. So what happened? Um, I was at work and we would normally get to work. We would G chat all day, uh, waste company money. <laughs> yeah. and, and he, we were G chatting. We we're making, it was Halloween. We were making a plan for that night. It's like, we had just moved in together. We we're going to hand out candy, real relationship milestones happening. And right. he stopped replying and I was so annoyed. I was so, I was like, dude, like wh- who's getting, am I getting candy? Are you getting candy? Right, How dare yeah. you go to a meeting right now? And hit, my phone rang and we, I was in this big open space and I, I was also mad. I was like, dude, you can't call me people. We have to, we have to waste time yeah. surreptitiously. And yeah. the person on the other end of the phone wasn't Aaron. It was um, one of his colleagues and he wanted to know if Aaron had ever had a seizure. Um, and I thought he was joking because it, this was like, these were the kind of guys who, Again, this 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 sort of thing would not fly in 2020, but in 2010 at an agency, if you left your computer open, they would send an all agency email being like, right. you know, hey, guys, just letting you know that I've got terrible diarrhea and I'll be taking right. the rest of the day. Sure, off. And, sure. and, and so it wasn't that much of a stretch to be like, oh, maybe they're just calling his girlfriend right. to fake Fuck his death. Yeah. yeah. And um, and he wasn't joking. And he said that Aaron had had a seizure at his desk and they needed to know where to send him, where, where the, where the ambulance should send him when they got there. And I remember looking at my supervisor who sat next to me and saying, if Aaron's in an ambulance, where should they send him? And she told me the name of a hospital. And I called my mom who worked upstairs and I said, you need, I don't have a car. Um, you need to, to, to take me to the hospital right now. And she came down and she pulled up to the emergency room and, um, uh, she said to me, look, I know you're scared. I need you to go in there and be a woman. And she reached across and pushed me out of the car. And when I walked into the back of the ER to find him, I like pulled the curtain back and he was shaking. Um, and he was faking a seizure faking it to mess with me uh so he'd come out of the real seizure he'd come out of the real seizure and he was like he was like man what's going on like he just we both it was so out of the ordinary and we both went to such an extreme place of denial that we thought um oh this is funny like we had to make it funny for each other of course right but you didn't know what it was at that point right or you didn't no, 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 no. And honestly, it's like, you know, people have seizures for all kinds of reasons. Who knows what it is? And they did all of these tests and you, you're you all of a sudden a part of this machine. You're a part of this medical machine and you allow each other to have this sort of magical thinking. And we did that for each other where, okay, well, they're just, they're giving, they're taking you for an MRI just to 
make sure nothing is wrong yeah. because that's how not wrong things are. Right. And um, so we knew that night that he did have a brain tumor and um, I spent the night in the hospital with him and I asked him to marry me <laughs> with his mom laying next to me in a fold out chair. And, um, and he said, don't marry me because uh, I'm going to die. And I said, that's. But you did it. Well, you did it. And what was it? What, what was the prognosis? I mean, like he had, um, we didn't know because they don't, there's so many people who don't want to tell you. And there's so many reasons that they can't tell you. They, they can see a brain tumor, but it's so sadly not like uh, Gray's anatomy. It's not definitive. Um, it's not definitive. And we knew he had a brain tumor. We knew it was in like the right side, the right frontal lobe. Uh, and he had brain surgery and we didn't know uh, for weeks what it meant. And our actual wedding, this is my wedding dress, by the way. Oh, really? Um, yeah, it still has the tag on it because it was $265 and I was hoping to return it, but I sweated too much uh -huh. and I had to keep it. Um, so you mean you they had the surgery so you didn't know if it was malignant or not? No, and we tried to believe it wasn't. Like we yeah. tried because I had I had heard I'd had a friend who had a strange, you know, his ears were ringing and then he had a brain tumor removed. and It was nothing. It was uh. nothing. And I wanted that to be true. And I truly I, I thought it would be. But a part of me also right away did go to the very worst case. It went to the worst case. And um, we got married a month after that brain surgery. And we knew when we got married, we knew on that day that it was stage four glioblastoma. And we had told his doctor um, to never give us, I, I don't never give us a timeline. Like what would you do with that information that would possibly be useful? And we would rather just live with the time we had left. And also, I did Google it once. And I Googled it and Aaron saw it on my phone. And he said, why are you Googling that? And I was like, did I? I mean, hmm. Um, and right away at the very top of the page, and the only time I ever Googled it, it said three to five years. After they remove a tumor. That's After just they, a, matter, a matter of time before it grows more. I honestly didn't even get that far. Maybe they meant from the minute it started growing, but it ended up being three years from that first brain surgery from our wedding to um, his funeral was the three year wedding anniversary our three year wedding anniversary. So that day. Mm -hmm. Did you do that on purpose? I did it on purpose. I did it on purpose. <sighs> it, was, it was eight days later and and I wanted to have one day to remember stuff and not, there's so many days. There's so many days. It's like, there's the day he had a seizure. There's the day he had a brain surgery. There's the day we found out it was cancer. There's the day I was told, that I, I sat with him in that same ER and they said, it's done. You don't have any time. You don't have any time. And then there's the day he dies. And then there's the, it's, there's so many days that are sort of, that will ring in your mind forever. And then there's the reality of living every single day without this person. And those are, uh, I don't know, you're in, uh, not to, I don't want to diagnose you because I'm also, I don't have any expertise other than lived experience. And I am not part of a, of a, of a, a grief therapy machine. And also I'm a person who knows like, 
that it is forever and you are in you you're feeling stuff now but you're also in shock and you will be for a long time and that time time is not a balm <laughs> like how long when he got sick now you you uh, there was sort of a triple whammy right well he got sick and then we had just do you have a kid with him i do yeah yep so a year later we had about a year later after our wedding we had a child and yeah. his, his brain tumor came back uh he had a brain surgery like two weeks before that baby was due we went into it knowing and really like he went into it knowing like that he was going to have a kid and probably not be there. And he did that with me anyways. And I think that was so brave. And I think that was so generous. And I got to see him be a dad, which he deserved. And um, I- For like what, a year? For almost two years, almost two years. So we had Ralph together and mm. he had his, he had a second brain surgery right before Ralph was born. And I thought this will kill him. And I will have this baby alone. And that didn't mm. happen. We had we had another year and a half. And then I could tell that things were getting worse. He couldn't hold Ralph. He couldn't um, use the left side of his body anymore. And so we knew that it was getting bad. But, you know, you have to go get the evidence from, from an MRI. And honestly, our years together were so good and so happy and so normal except for going to the hospital every week to give blood and going to the hospital for three days a month for chemo and having brain surgeries. We also just like had a baby and watched game of Thrones and, and, and like I yelled at him for not taking out the garbage and like, we just had this normal, normal life and cancer wasn't all of it. It was right. just, um, and then your and, and then your father got sick. Yeah, so rude. My dad was. Look, I have no basis to back this up, other than my dad did get a flyer from the VA. My dad was in Vietnam. He was exposed to all kinds of stuff. He developed lymphoma, um, and he was diagnosed in May of of uh, May of two thousand fourteen. He was dead by October two thousand fourteen. And Aaron died six weeks after that. And I was pregnant when my, uh, I was pregnant for most of that time, that last year. That's not true. I don't know how to word pregnancy, but basically I lost my second pregnancy a week before my dad died. And, uh, and that was the last chance that we had to have a second child together. And I know it sounds insane to say like, we were going to have another kid together, but I wanted as much of him as possible. Like I wanted to just keep as much of him as possible. And he wanted to have another baby and we wanted Ralph to have a sibling. We wanted on our second date, we were talking about, I wanted four kids. He wanted two. I was obviously going to trick him into at least three. And, and it just, it, it, looking back, that sounds crazy. And I obviously was, grief does make you crazy. And I was grieving. Like I, I was grieving from the minute he was diagnosed that I knew we weren't going to, we weren't going to be my parents. We weren't going to have a 40th anniversary party. Um, like we were, we were lucky to have like a three year anniversary party and um, which was his funeral. <laughs> but um, 
yeah, all that happened at once. All that happened at once. I had to bring Aaron with me to the doctor to find out the baby was dead. And I just felt like I just fucking ruined the end of his life. Like, like I got greedy and he just. Ugh. Yeah. And then I had to drive across town and be like, Hey dad, (laughs) like. It's so, (laughs) so much. So much, but. But I guess it knowing, I mean, it's it's interesting and, and kind of emotional that there was something driving you to, to kind of save these parts of him and have this life, and and that the love was, you know, you know, so uh, deep and and needed to be honored, that you you kind of forged ahead and and did all this stuff. Yeah, yeah, we did it together. But like all this death and tragedy, like it's almost like I mean, after all of that, after processing that or or continuing to process it that sort of became like your, your calling somehow. (laughs) Kind of. Yeah. I, so there's this, this is also like such a sign of the times, but Aaron and I had, um, we had started a a blog that I wrote called my husband's tumor.com. Cause that URL was affordable to me. And I just wanted to, I was writing everything down. I was keeping all these notes about, about these moments that we were experiencing and how, how clear they were, because I was still paying attention. Right. I was, I, and I knew there was value in paying attention. I'd never paid attention to the hard things in my life. I'd always been like, just, just ignore it and it'll go away. Like just right. break up with this boy and pretend you never met him. And like, just, just get through this meeting just, and I wanted to be present for all of it. And it was also so hard to, um, to honestly, to keep everybody on an email. It's like, I don't know who I, I kept forgetting my brother, my big brother, who's the best one. He's so kind. And I would send out these emails about Aaron's cancer and my brother would be like, wait, what? Aaron has cancer? And I'm like, oh shit, dude. Yes. Yeah. Like, (laughs) sorry. Sorry. You had to hear it from dad. Um, So I started this blog and it was really just for our family. And it was really an act of passive aggression. It was really just, uh, Aaron was, had a great Gatsby life where everyone was so, present for the good times and it was really lonely being his wife when he was sick it was very lonely oh so you wanted to bring everybody into it to to sort of uh i wanted to shame them into showing up and i wanted to let people know passive aggressively why have a direct conversation when you could just write a blog post that's like he's still a person he still wants you to ask him to go to brunch you assholes. He can still right. see you on Instagram. Like Right. Oh, they were just so uncomfortable with it. So uncomfortable. I, it's, because, it, you know, I, I'm just trying to work through this stuff on yeah. my own, only in that. And I guess maybe I am in shock, though I'm trying to deal and I'm trying to have the feelings. But I think that after a certain point, and I imagine it's the same when someone's terminally ill, that people don't really know how to behave. And it also reflects on their own mortality and uh, fragility and they don't want to be around that. Mm -hmm. And I think more importantly, I I think that everyone was just so afraid of saying the wrong thing or appear like appearing to show Uh, up in the wrong way that it's safer to not, because what if they say the wrong thing to you about Lynn? Like what if it's, and also you're so unpredictable when you're grieving and I will own that. Like there were a lot of relationships that I burned to the ground because it hurt. It hurt so much. And 
if you asked me the wrong thing on the wrong day, I would lose my mind on you. Like I would lose my mind on you. It's where I've really sort of like instinctively insulated myself because I, you know, I don't want to make it about me necessarily, you know, and I know that there are people that have had longer relationships with her and her parents and her family that are going through a tough time. I don't really know those people that well, but there are people in my life who I know are not going to really say what I need to hear. And I, and I've told them like, look, I'll get to you when I can get to you. Yeah. It's nothing, it's nothing personal. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're also more emotionally mature uh, than I was at oh, the time. I don't time. know about that. I didn't know how to say that. I didn't know how to say that I didn't even know what I needed. I really did want people to read my mind. And when he was sick, I was angry for him. Like my anger for him and for the life that he was losing. Um, when there's so many assholes who live forever, like so many jerks. At, yeah, like, I can't. I don't know. I can't. It's so weird. Yeah. I, I, you know, I can't, I can't do, I can't let myself think that shit. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would just sometimes be like confronted by it. And then I would be so mad and I was so mad for him because he was so kind and he showed right. up for so many people. And I wanted people to, I don't know, there was nothing, honestly, there was nothing they could have done correctly, except for the very few friends who just showed up and let him be a person and right. sat on the couch with him and brought him a five pound bag of, of sour patch kids, which was so disgusting. And, yeah. you know, and just let him be a, a person. But, um, I, I also like, I do have a, I have a hard time with parts of the life that I have because I would rather have had Aaron men, I would rather be able to talk to Mark Marin because I did something else. I don't know, like, what could I have done that was more interesting? But it's like, this is what I have. And, and this is what I've been able to do with it. And I would still prefer. I don't know, I didn't, I didn't pick it. You don't get to pick what happens, but you get to choose what you do with it. And I knew I couldn't go back and sit in a cubicle and pretend to be normal. And even though I had no money, I didn't have life insurance. He was 31 when we met, we were unmarried. And um, I just knew I couldn't go back. I couldn't, I, I had to make something else up. I had to do something else. Well, it's, it seems to me that like, given where you were, you know, once you met this person who was able to sort of open up that part of you that was shut out because of lack of confidence or you didn't really know where you wanted to go, that that it, it, it provided you, a, a, you know, a, a, a wholeness and a sense of depth mm -hmm. that that, you know, you could appreciate in yourself and he could appreciate in you. So, I mean, I would imagine coming out of the tragedy that, you know, if you could be of service with that depth, you know, it's, it's not like you, you were necessarily going to just move on and, you know, uh, with your new confidence and do the writing or whatever, which I mean, you did anyways, but, but I mean, I think there seems to be some part of you that, that, that likes to be of service. It is. And I also like, I knew very early that we were lucky even though he had three to five years to live lucky because of how you felt about each other. And because of, because of everything, we would go to the hospital and we would look around us and be like, Oh, that's bad. Like we're not here with our three-year-old, right, you know, right. we're, like you would, we'd go to the radiation uh, center and, 
at one point somebody had left a door open and we looked in and all of the radiation, uh, they sort of melt this plastic sheet onto you. Um, they, yeah. So it forms to you so they can aim the radiation. And there was a tiny one, like a uh. itty bitty kid torso. And Aaron was like, that's sad. And we have each other and we're okay. And how lucky to have health insurance, get health yeah. insurance. And, and, and a year before he had been a contractor at that agency with no insurance and mm-hmm. he would have not gotten the care that he got. There's no way, there's no way. And seeing the sticker price of a brain surgery, it's not like I want a deal on a brain. It's not like you're going to price shop for a brain surgery. And the cost of that brain surgery was more than the house we lived in was worth. We didn't pay that because of insurance, but right. we knew that we were lucky. Somebody started a like a you know a fundraiser again. America crowdsource your way through tragedy, which was yeah. humiliating for me. We both had good jobs. How did we not have you know money to pay for a funeral or for me you to were pay young. for a hospice? You know, like I like looking. At, but like, you were had, you were young. I mean, it wasn't like you had some. No, but it's also I'm like oh, we, I felt like a failure, like meeting with, you know, home health aides and being like, okay, it's $35 an hour. So if you come at 1am, I'll go to bed at one, I'll wake up at seven. So you can relieve you and then I'll take care of it. Like it was having other people step up and give us that money. Let me hire people. Let me pay for his funeral. Let me pay off his medical debt. And I would go through at night, other people's fundraisers and see it, if you don't have a network of people who can even give you $5 or $25, um, you are truly left out to dry. Like you are, you are done. Like what doesn't kill you won't make you stronger. It will fucking ruin you. It will fucking ruin you financially, which will ruin your children's future and their children's future. And um, I, 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 I have always felt very driven I guess yeah. To I, I've never put it that way, but I have felt driven to to help other people through this, however I can, and in whatever way I can. Well, all right. So, so you you lose a baby, and then and then your father dies, and then your husband dies. Yes. Within a month or yeah. a month and a half, October to November. Yeah. And you were sort of prepared. I guess for your father and your husband in a way, in a yeah. way it's like it's you are, and then you're not, of course. Right. Yeah. You I'm know, dealing yeah. with my, I, it's not the same, but I've got this yeah. cat that's been sick for a year and somehow or another he's, you know, he's holding on and Lynn's dead. Yeah. And I've, I've been, I've been waiting for this fucking thing to yeah. die for a year. And yeah. now I got, now the thought of him dying is just devastating to me yeah. because I know that once that happens, all of the grief's going to come, raining down on me oh yeah and then every time you hear something similar you're gonna see people who look like lynn i don't have you started to see her around i guess you're not really leaving your house because no but like i just like like i've done like i don't know how you know to really how one handles this because i did there was no preparation you know she was just you know really sick for a few days and then she you know never came back Mm -hmm. from the hospital and but I've had a couple of dreams and I, I've, I've kept a couple of items of hers that I seem to, you know, connect with and, uh, you know, I'm able to sort of summon her up. I've recently, now that I'm a month into this, been able to, you know, look at some videos and stuff. Mm-hmm. 
but sometimes I just can't take it. Yeah. A month is nothing. A month is like a minute. No, like, I know, but I mean, yeah. like, I I get that. Like, you know, I watch the the TED talk, but like, you know, people send, you know, they recommend these books. Yeah. The two books. It seems to be the 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 Joan Didion book, <laughs> The Year of Magical Thinking, which was good, actually. You know, yeah. I don't know if I I could have read it. A, a, I could have waited a little while, but the yeah. other one, the the C.S. Lewis book, is just way oh. too dense for me. I a can't. grief observed. Yeah. That one. No, 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 no. Severin sent me that one too. I think it's still on my shelf, but I was like, I can't, I can't do it. I can't do it right now. And people sent me a lot of books. And whenever people are like, what book should I send someone? I'm like, don't send them my books. I'm sorry. That's probably the worst advice. <laughs> don't send them my books. Yeah. No. How many Just, books have you read, written about I've, it? I've written, um, a, a, the first book I wrote, uh, I wrote in the six months after Aaron died, just frenetically, like I have to get this out. I want to, I want a chaotic book that is about this chaotic experience. And it's, what called, was that it's, called? Okay, it's called, it's okay to laugh. Crying is cool too. Yeah. And, um, and then the second book I wrote was called uh, no happy endings. And that's about meeting my current husband and blending our family. And the fact that I did not even feel the depth of my grief until I fell in love again, until I met Matthew and, and was present with him and, and, and had a safe place to be with, with this, with this depth of loss. Um, and then I wrote a grief, a book with Ted called the hot young widows club, which is a uh, very practical, a book for people who are grieving and also for the grief adjacent to help them be better. But like when friends. you say, like you, you know, you had all this grief and you weren't able to fully process it until you fell in love again, um, but because you were just holding on to it and managing it, and that when somebody gave you, it. oh, I ran so fast, I ran so hard. The year after Aaron died, I wrote a book. I I I rented my house out, the house where he died, and I took Ralph, I took my little kid, my little two-year-old, and I bought one-way tickets to any city where we knew someone. So I stayed uh, in Los Angeles with my friend Tyler, thank you, buddy, um, with his newlywed wife who was like, hi. Yeah. Well, you, were you just you were just going around visiting people crying? No, just just avoiding. Just I, if as long as I wasn't in Minneapolis, as long as I didn't have to like see oh, the coffee shit, shop. Man. As long as I I'm not fucking... I'm yeah. not avoiding it. I mean, I can't like if I could stop crying in front of my neighbors, it'd be good. It just, just because if they ask me how I'm doing, you know, I'm so I, I'm so touched by you know the sort of uh, even if it's impulsive, there's a, a kind of human genuine concern. You know, it's not it's not just politeness. I don't know that they know what they're getting into when they ask. Yeah. Right, but. You know, I, I think it's genuine. You, you know, I don't know if they, like, if I, like, my neighbor who I don't really know that well says, How am I doing? And I'm like, I'm all right. And I start to get choked up and he's still standing there. Yeah. I don't know if he feels uncomfortable. I, I don't know. Yeah. But, yeah. You, you know, that's what's happening. Yeah. And there's something like, I, I don't want that to be happening forever, the crying in front of neighbors. But sometimes it feels like, that the feelings come out when I'm in the presence of people. I don't know why mm -hmm. that is. I mean, they come out alone, but there's something a lot more unmanageable about that. And it seems easier for me to shut them down when I'm alone. 
yeah. unless I let myself sit in it. But like because we're in quarantine and I can't really hang out with people that much, like I'm in this thing, and, and I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's mm-hmm. probably a, making me sort of really deal with it. I don't think it's a bad thing at all. I actually wish that I would have I would have been with it, and I did not want to be with it. I did not want to be with it, and I didn't want anyone to feel bad for me, and I just felt so much pity and I could, I could cry as long as I didn't know the person. So God right. bless every target checkout boy who was right, like, how are you right doing today? Home. And I was like, yeah. honestly, I'm so glad you asked Tyler. Cause I'm fucking unwell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, this baby, his dad is dead. Uh, I hope you don't fall in love cause you might die. Um, I, <laughs> I just was so, busy and I wore, I looked so good too. I never looked better the year after Aaron died. Aaron, like I would always dress up for him at the hospital. (laughs) Like I always wore lipstick. I always looked nice. I looked very good after he died. I put a lot of effort into my appearance and I try, I stayed with my best friends. I stayed here in Arizona where Aaron's sister lived. I came down and stayed in her daughter's bed and her daughter slept on the floor. Thank you, sweet Josie. You live in Arizona? I just moved here. Yeah. Um, and I just avoided and avoided and avoided. And, um, Matthew was introduced to me by my friend, Mo, who's also a widow, um, who started the high young widows club with me. And, uh, I, I don't know. It's, it was a year after Aaron died and I could feel like all of, I could feel it from the back of my neck to my shoulders. Like I couldn't even turn my head. Like it was, it had found me, like it had gotten to me. And it was in my body, the grief, grief. And I, I truly, it was like, I was so achievement oriented. I was going to, like, I started a freelance career. I was going to do, you know, whatever I could to, to pay my own bills. And, um, and I met Matthew and I wasn't like, oh, I need a, I was actually, I'd never wanted to really fall in love again. I maybe wanted to like have sex with a guy and have him kill spiders in my basement. But like, no, I, I didn't, I had it once. I had it so good if yeah. I wanted it, it would just felt, it felt greedy. And I don't know. And Matthew was just, he hadn't been through that, but he had been through something. And he, I don't know. It's like just having someone present with me who didn't feel bad for me. He didn't feel bad for me. Right. And, and he would come over early on in our relationship and I, I would have put Ralph to bed and I would read him. Oh my God, I have a book to send you. You know, the only book you need to be reading right now. Mm. Mary Oliver Felicity. What is that? It's a book of her poems. And I would read poems out loud because it's about her losing her partner and, and growing old and loss and grief. And I would read these poems out loud to him and I would just bawl on the floor. <laughs> and he would really? just, and he would just sit there and, 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 and just be with me. So like, when you when you talk about this, do you run groups? Do you talk to other people grieving? Do you you provide guidance? What do you see your job as? I mean, I don't know what my job is. I don't know what my job is. I don't know if I'll still have a podcast because APM's doing layoffs right now. But I um wouldn't that the the podcast terrible? Thanks for asking. Is yeah. about what is it's, that? What that was that was I started that podcast. Um, yeah. I had. After, oh, I didn't tell you the best part, Mark. Do you know about Aaron's obituary? No. Google Aaron Permort obituary. P-U-R-M-O-R-T. Aaron jo- Joseph Permort 
obituary in the Star Tribune. Mm-hmm. Um, Permort, Aaron Joseph, age 35, died peacefully at home on November 25th after complications from a radioactive spider bite that led to years of crime fighting and, <laughs> and years-long battle with nefarious criminal named Cancer. So sad. Who has plagued our society for far too long. Civilians will recognize him best as Spider-Man and thank him for his many years of service protecting our city. His family knew him only as a a kind and mild-mannered art director, designer of websites and T-shirts and concert posters who always had the right cardigan and the right thing to say, even if it was wildly inappropriate. Aaron was known for his long, entertaining stories, which he loved to repeat often. In high school, he was in the band The Asparagus Children, which reached critical acclaim in the northern suburbs. As an adult, he graduated from the College of Visual Arts, which also died an untimely death recently, and worked in several agencies around Minneapolis, settling in as an interactive associate creator, creative director at Collie and McVoy. Cole McVoy. Cole McVoy. Aaron was a comic book aficionado, a pop culture encyclopedia, and always the most fun person at any party. He's, he is survived by his parents, Bill and Kim Colemeyer, father Mark Permort, Patricia Autumn, Allie, sisters Erica and Nicole, first wife Gwen Stefani, (laughs) current wife Nora, and their son Ralph, who will grow up to avenge his father's untimely death. A service will be held on December 3rd, 2014 at Shelter Studios, 721 Harding Street, 6 p.m. Yeah. We wrote that together. You wrote it together. (laughs) He wrote that with me the night he entered hospice, and I'd just written my dad's obituary with my dumb brothers, and it was... Yeah, we labored over it, and I was like, "Dad could have written this in five minutes, no muss, no fuss, four easy payments of four ninety nine, and yeah, yeah. and uh, and in, and I just didn't want that responsibility to be on me, and so I typed, and he talked, and we got to like make this thing together, and it was so expensive to publish. <laughs> what do you mean? They charge per word. Do they? And I thought, thought they would fact check it but it's an ad for your death you pay for it and so they published it and it was just an inside joke for our friends and our family because he loved spider-man and um and it went viral and uh and it felt like it felt like aaron got to like have the last word and have it like have that last joke and that and that's what that's like what a that's what oh fuck that's what a lit agent saw, and um, and I think he gave me that and yeah, it's like it's nice that you were obviously bittersweet but beautiful that you had the time yeah because I you know that's one of the things like you know there's so many things I wrestle with because of how it happened and what it happened, and you know none of them are answerable questions you know I don't know that given the nature of what she was up against disease wise, that her knowing it would have been a good thing. And you can't really answer those questions. It wouldn't have bought her much time. Um, But I don't know. What can you tell me about, you know, I know that you say it's, I I, I'm aware that it's never going to, you know, really go away, but I'm also aware, like you said, and something I hang on to a little more is that, you know, that everybody is going to deal with this in one form or another. This is like as human as birth mm-hmm. uh, is death, obviously, but also, you know, grief and all its different manifestations. And, and a lot of people tell me there's no right way to do it. There's no wrong way to do it. But I tend to feel instinct instinctively that 
the way to do it is to to is to let the feelings happen and and to sort of you know make note of it. I mean, the one thing the Joan Didion book was sort of interesting about at the end was that like you know it's going to get quieter and it's going to get you know the, the, it's going to get foggier. Um, but because like one thing I'm experiencing right now is a fear of forgetting. Yeah. Um, our son just found an old iPhone and turned it on and there were text messages on there from Aaron and they were so boring. Yeah. (laughs) Um, they were just regular text messages about our day and who's picking up the baby from daycare and, uh, and who's doing what and do we have a plan for dinner? And I, I like took it out of his hand. Like, like, yeah, oh yeah. God, like there's something in here that I didn't know about. And um, yeah, I still feel that. I still feel that fear because. Um, you got a lot going on. What I was told by my friend who had just lost her brother um, yeah. after Aaron died, she said, someday you'll miss this acute pain because it means that they're still close. Right. And um, they're going to get harder to conjure in your mind. And I thought, like, fuck off, Claire. Like, <laughs> like I would, I don't want to feel this. And I did do it the wrong way. There is a wrong way to grieve, and that's to not do it. And I spent a whole year avoiding. And um, well, what were your thoughts in doing that? That you had already done it, or that you knew it was coming, or that like it was, you know, in yeah, like what? I mean, I remember my friend Tyler saying to me, I ended up going to therapy only because he was like, if you don't go to therapy, we cannot be friends. You lost your husband. You like, you were there for like all of this stuff. You have a child. And I remember telling him like, what's she going to tell me? Like that I'm sad. But it's like, no one had told me that I was grieving for the entire time of our marriage. Right. That had never been presented to me. I was never like, asked by a doctor if I was okay. Um, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have time. I didn't have time to not be okay. So I was so used to living at like a high stress level that I didn't see another way. Like I'd never been able to sit with any of these feelings for any length of time because, um, because we had, we had, we had stuff to do. We had to, we had to go to work still. We worked the whole time he was sick. I would take conference calls from his hospital room Mm. Um, we had a baby, like there was always stuff to do. And so I was just used to living at that level. And a part of me thought if I can get to a year, it'll be over. Oh yeah. We'll get through it. Yeah. And, and I don't know why so many people have that same feeling. Like after a year, it'll, it will be better just because that amount of time has to make it better. And, um, instead I hit the year mark and it was like, the process of falling in love with Matthew, the process of um, just having someone there. And also the fact that he was a dad, I was like, oh shit, like this is everything that Aaron will never be too. So it's all very tangled up. But also it seems to me that, you know, it coincided with, you know, the finding someone who could, you know, hold the space. Yeah. You know, that seems to be the sort of thing that is interesting to me about what I'm going through is that, you know, even if it's my neighbor for a minute for, you know, no, no sort of uh, intention of their own, you know, that space is afforded me and, you know, and I take it because I don't find myself having much choice in that moment. And there are other people that I spend time with where, 
you know, there's a few guys that I that have gotten me through a lot of different things. You know, divorces. You, you know, crazy people that I you know was in relationships with who are still with me, and you know, and and a couple of new friends that will you know we'll sit and talk for a while, and then when you know when it comes around, you know, the grief or the crying or the sadness or that moment where that opens, like I'll just do it, and then you know we'll kind of let it happen, and then talk about other things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but like what, like in looking back on it, you know, what are your regrets or what are your notes in terms of sort of like, you know, because I, I mean, um, I guess the things I struggle with really is that, you know, when is it okay to, you know, to not feel terrible? And I guess I don't have much choice over that, but I find myself, if I have a day where, you know, there's several hours where I'm not, you know, thinking about it, where I'm like, oh, fuck, I, I, I. I got to get back to it or, you know, I got, I got, can't be over it, but you're not, it's just a very, no, it's a very confusing thing. And there's a lot of things you want to do to relieve it, but I don't have a lot of options. So what, what can you tell me? What do I got to do? One, I think you are like, the fact is you've already been through some stuff. And so you do have some coping mechanisms and you also have friends who have been through some stuff and not this. Yeah. This is, a first for all of you. And I wish that I would have had that context to say, Nora, you're 31. No one in your life has been through shit yet. None right. of you. And so you are new to this and so are they. And they don't know that you have no idea what you're doing. They think you're in charge. They're following you. They're taking your lead. Mm. And I have responsibility for that part of my grief. And for the fact that I made it impossible for my brothers to be there for me. I made it like, um, Really? Yeah. It's just like, I just didn't know what I needed. I just knew that I was sad and I was hurt. I just didn't feel like I could be that or show that to people without ruining their day or like oh, ruining I their life. Yeah. <laughs> they, have their, they have their own kids. They have kids Ralph's age. And um, I wish that I would have spent more time in the hard, in the hard feelings for my own sake. Yeah, yeah, my brother came right out. I don't I I thought I was pretty good at, you know, st- you know, stuffing this stuff, but I I you know, when it comes, I can't, you know. Yeah. I, and that's I'm good. And, that's so good. And also it's like people want to we also live in a space where like we want to and we've been forced to because um you're self-employed, which is ideal at this point in time because if you worked for a corporation, you would be lucky to have three to five business days to and actually maybe not because you and Lynn weren't married. Sorry. Right. Like it's it's that's that's how it is. My friend yeah. Mo was cutting hair a week after her husband died by suicide because uh if she doesn't cut hair, she doesn't get paid. Right. And 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 then we're sort of forced to like justify our pain so we can scale it for other people. And so even hearing you say like, well, I wasn't with her for that long. So I guess I'm just sad about the future is fucked up to me because I don't know. Is it is it more or less sad that my mom lost her husband of 40 years when I lost my husband of four years? Like, I guess that, could, like I I know I but I seem to say. do that yeah I think I think it's I I think I'm trying to contextualize it or something because yeah. I knew right away from the beginning that there were so many people that knew her so much better than me and I was like this n- the new guy the last guy I didn't even know her family really and you know so there was I guess it's just my nature to kind of diminish that in in and maybe that's also a bit of a 
you know, me trying to minimize it so I won't have the feelings, you know. Well, and it's the thing is like grief does feel like an individual sport and it feels like a competitive sport in some ways. And I, my pain is so different from Erin has one sister. She's an only child now. That is different. It's yeah. different. And we both mm. miss him and there's no comparing it because it's so different. And I got a new husband, but I'll never get Aaron. You know, it's like, it's so different. And we want there to be like some sort of like, you know, how, how do you measure this? Is it the metric system? Is it like, who but knows? I mean, it's, but it's, how do you, but you, like you talked a little bit about, you know, that you don't move on. That seemed to bother you. The idea, I've, are you yeah. moving on or have you moved on? Or Yeah, I I hate that phrase so much. And somebody said that to me at the funeral. Um, They're like, you're young. You're still beautiful. Um, I was like, Oh, thank you. Um, I've put a lot of effort into that tonight and, uh, and you'll find someone else. You'll move on. Right. And I just thought in what world will this be like just a part of my past and not just because we have a child together, but I, that whole experience it is a part of who I am. All of it is. All of it is. I mean. Right. It's a, But it's weird because it gives you this weird like um, like you can, I, I can already feel and see, you know, like whatever I've been through, it's been relatively selfish, mm-hmm. you know, bad marriages. I don't have children. You know, I'm a kind of a, you know, an anxiety ridden, you know, aggravated guy who's trying to, you know, always. I don't know what I am, but 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 the one thing. I know is that I've never dealt with this and this is a particularly bad version of losing a loved one. Mm-hmm. Really. It does open something in in your heart, in your mind about the fragility of life and 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 sort of empathy and like cuz all of a sudden like yeah I've become sort of not judging myself against or competing but you know I find myself like really feeling for her family and you know, mm-hmm. like just you know, and I'm 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 a pretty self-absorbed person, but like you know, now it's not so easy, you know, when you hear about like yeah. I remember the other day, like I just read like Hank Williams Jr.'s daughter died in a car crash, and you know I don't you know what do I know about Hank Williams Jr. Politically, he's not the greatest guy in the world, but but I know that he just lost a daughter and someone lost a mother, and, and all of a sudden it's not just this thing; it's sort of like. There's some people going through some really horrible stuff right now. Yeah, 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 and all and around the world every day. Yeah. And I guess you don't move on, and it, it doesn't. It isn't that it's just a memory, but I think when people say that shit, especially older people, it's like they've seen it. It's a, you know they don't know what your inner life is, but it's just them trying to be helpful, really. It is all these dumb things that people say are people trying to be helpful, and I. I think that I, I don't know. I say moving forward because it's like, yeah, the world spins on. And I remember leaving a funeral for a young person, a 20 year old boy with my dad and my dad and I stepping out of the funeral onto a busy street and my dad saying, and the world spins on. And I was like, yeah, fuck. Like, look at all these people driving cars, like, going to dinner, like arguing with their bosses, um, sending text messages, playing bejeweled, like completely unaware that like, no, no, no. Like it, it, the world is done. We have to stop. Like everything should stop right now. Do you know what's happening? And, um, well, that's what I think it does for, for the person who yeah. is there. And I think it's like, 
I don't think that they, they, I don't know in just thinking right now about, I, I don't think they counter each other. I, I think it seems like putting death into perspective, which is something, you know, humans have been trying to do since the beginning of consciousness, you know, one way or the other for better or, you know, worse results. The entire challenge of humanity is accepting and, and uh, you know, knowing death but putting into perspective, right, for your own individual being, like, it is sort of weird that the ego kicks in like that. It's like, you know, I know she's got friends and they, you know, everybody, is, I've moved on from people who I've known who died. You know, they're just, they, time stopped for them. Mm-hmm. And, but like time stops for you somehow too. That time that they were here is is now stopped. But, you know, you are, you are here with the feelings and the absence. And I guess that's, you know, that is part of that human growth thing that, that, you know, whatever that does to humans, if it doesn't make them furious and yell and scream at God and feel like they're victims because they've lost somebody, then it it seems to like it's part of the evolution of people is accepting that death happens and that these feelings happen, but there's nothing unusual about it. Yeah. It's not special. It's, it's not. Um, I have lived on, I am married. Matthew is a, the most beautiful soul. He and Aaron have so little in common, except that kind of everything in common. Yeah. But like Aaron would be the life of the party and Matthew would be like, oh, was I invited? Should I come in? <laughs> and, yeah. and like, um, and there's also these strange connections where like, Matthew was in one of the bands that Aaron really loved that I'd never heard of. I don't know any cool bands, but like one of these Minneapolis bands that Aaron loved and has, I have a whole, I have a whole storage unit full of his stuff, his clothes, his stickers, things for Ralph. And there's t-shirts from bands that Matthew was in and they never met. But so, but either way, he's been able to sort of afford you the space and the respect around this love you had, because I think you said in the Ted talk that, you know, that, that, that they coexist that you're able to move on and have had had what you had with Matthew. You have your son, but you also have, you know, those feelings that they don't go away and they don't, you know, but like, I, I do understand, like, I was very quick to say that I'm, you know, I'm not going to spend my life sort of sorting through, you know, her life. Mm-hmm. Do, do you know what I mean? Like, cause I could yes. see how people like, cause I see how people could do that to stay close to the people they lose. And I think that when you say, well, haven't you moved on? It almost sets up this idea that the only alternative to that is to make your life and yourself a museum to the person who died. Mm. You know, it is to say like this, this whole life is about, is about, is about their life. And people Mm. do that with their dead parents. They do it with their dead children. They do it with their dead husbands. And there is, there is such a thing as being stuck in your grief, there sure, is. Right. Yeah, I'm sure yeah. that there's like a, a, a psychological explanation for that. And there is sort of like this in-between space where it's like, I I will always love Aaron and I love Matthew. And we live in last tonight. Okay. So tonight, Matthew's oldest daughter is turning 14. We are going to have dinner at Aaron's sister's house with Aaron's parents, with Matthew's parents. And with all of our children, like Aaron's mom and Matthew's mom have a friendship that has nothing to do with me. One time I walked into the mall and they were having lunch without me. Rude. Caught them mm. red handed. 
in a yeah. mall I never go to. I walk in there having lunch without me. Yeah. Um, like they have, I don't know. It's, it's, it's really expanded my idea of what life and uh, love could be in a way that I just, I don't know, like no little girl is, sits up at night being like, God, I hope I fall in love and he dies. And then I'm a stepmom. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like it's just, but I, th- I think what the, the more important thing is, is that it has expanded your sense of what love can be. I think that, I mean, I think that is the best thing that can happen. Which like when you, I've never been divorced. I've never, but I have had every breakup I ever had. I was like, okay, so now I have to completely devalue that relationship. I have to say it didn't matter at all. Um, Like that guy sucked. Uh, He's dead to me. Um, Those three years we spent together were stupid. It meant nothing to me. And that doesn't work when the person dies. Like it doesn't. No, because they're they're like I thought of that because like I I don't think like that I I, I mm-hmm. have ever yeah you know, I, I have a begrudging respect for all of my relationships yeah. and they were all sort of heartbreaking in in their own way even the ones that I ended but uh but the weird thing about death is it's like she ain't out there with somebody else mm-hmm. you know it's like there's no because a lot of that is protecting yourself from that. It's mm-hmm. like the, he's dead to me. It's, it, that's knowing yeah. that you know they're going to be around. They're going to be around. They're going to doing they, whatever. Yeah. Well, look, I'm I'm glad you talked to me, and I'm glad yeah. that uh, you know you, you're okay. Yeah, you'll be okay. Thank you. Do you feel okay about what happened here? <sighs> about the podcast? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Good. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. Good. This is like also this has been um, also your podcast is the only one my brothers listen to. In, they don't listen to my podcast. So this will fuck them up, honestly. Oh, yeah. So at least we, be we... Like, this is me tricking them into listening to me because they don't listen to my podcast. They only listen to your podcast. And I remember uh-huh. being so deeply offended by that. But my brother was like, I just don't have space in my life for a new podcast. I don't know where people have the space. So now, okay, so at least we achieved that. <laughs> at least we achieved that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's like being told it's going to be okay. That was like Aaron's thing too. Oh, being, what, what did he, Aaron had a problem with being, things, everything's going to be okay? Or he no, said that? No, he used, right. used to say that all the time. And I was like, fuck off. Like, fuck off. No, it won't be. And like, I don't think he meant like, it will be okay that I'm going to die at 35, but just that like, you will feel okay. Like things will be okay. And truly the only thing that makes life meaningful is that it ends. Well, I think that's weird. It it kind of like at some point it has to be, there has to, to, it has to be, you know, it's, you, you have to accept it, Mm -hmm. you know? So like, you know, whether it's okay or not, I don't know, but, but, you know, at some point, you know, it, it has to be what it is. Yeah. Which is also like, is there any less satisfying phrase than it is what it is? I fucking hate it. I'm like, yeah, I guess it is. I guess it is what it is, isn't but it? But the truth of the matter <laughs> is it is okay. You know, at any given moment, usually you're okay. Yes. And and truly, it's like, I I was okay. And I was also always going to be okay. I, I, I sold that house. It turns out that was okay. And in the meantime, I lived with my mom and that was okay. I was never going to be completely homeless. I was never going to be completely lost. Like I was always going to be okay. And that shocks me because my whole growing up, I did not think that I could go through a hard thing. You know, I don't know. I just did not 
Yeah, it's so, these, but these are the really hard things. These are the really hard things. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you, Mark. Okay, that was me and Nora, and uh, her podcast is terrible. Thanks for asking. And now I will play some guitar for you.